All right, everybody. Hope it's been an awesome holiday weekend so far. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. And I had this experience a couple months ago. You know, sometimes you hear something and you know, I think that forever, the way I think about a certain thing or act in a certain way, it's just going to shift. I had one of those moments. I was at the conference and Pastor Lee was there with me. It was in his pre-Red Cupcake shirt days. Um, but we were there and we're at this conference. It had been a long day and the speaker got up to speak and he was going to talk about parenting. I thought, okay, got three kids at home. This will be good. Specifically, he was talking about how you form the hearts of kids, of your kids uh, toward God. And I thought, okay, it'll be great. And the first point he made got me a little uncomfortable. He said, what do you do to motivate your kids to do or not do something? And the answer to that was rewards. We offer them rewards. So for instance, hey, get all your chores done. What do you get? Well, you can have 20 minutes on the Nintendo Switch. That happens in my house a lot. Or hey, if you actually get along with your siblings, you might get some extra trampoline time after dinner. Or maybe memorize your Bible verse and we're gonna get you some ice cream. You know, if you do that multiple weeks in a row, whatever, going on and on. Now, he said, here's the deal. This is going to sting, but it doesn't mean rewards are inherently bad. But if that's the only thing that you use long enough to motivate a kid or an adult, and that's the constant focus, then it communicates that the ultimate goal in your life is pleasure, is whatever feels good, that you need to be happy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Our culture sends this message all the time, right? But what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is God didn't create us to operate that way. That is not the ultimate aim. What is the ultimate aim? Well, the book of Deuteronomy says it. This is a verse, we memorized this when our kids were tiny. And it's in Deuteronomy 6. It says, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. You know, we recite that every Saturday morning at our breakfast, on our Sabbath breakfast. We've known it a long time. Jesus echoed those words in the New Testament and said, just to remind you, this is the goal, but I realize the way I parent my kids, I have conditioned them to push back against that. I've been too obsessed with the rewards model. And I didn't want to admit that, but I, I kind of had to admit that. And it, it doesn't surprise me if that's the mindset we get into about rewards. And many of us, maybe we have conditioned ourselves that way or culture has conditioned us. Well, it's no wonder we struggle with anxiety and depression because we're looking for these ultimate highs and this ultimate pleasure. And that's not what life gives you. You know, starting when you're students, you know, some of y'all, maybe you're working through middle school or you're working through high school and you're trying to get these grades and you, there might come a day where you get there getting ready to go off to school or whatever and you're like, where are my scholarships? Or, gosh, I got an awesome degree, just got out of college. Where is my awesome job? I can't even get an entry level position in my field. Or as adults, we do the same thing. I got all my work done today. I think I deserve a pizza. And oh, the app's telling me I can add a cookie to it too. I'm going to add two and a brownie, you know? Or I, I retired. I bought a boat. I get to spend all this time on the lake and I'm still a miserable wreck despite that fact. I've worked my whole career. I got to my 60s. Is this all there is? Really? I did the right thing. Why am I so miserable? 
as we continue through this book of Habakkuk today, in week three of this, we're going to see the people in that kingdom 2,500 years ago, they had the same struggle that we have with this. They lost sight about what was most important, and they paid the consequences for it. And what's so likable about Habakkuk is he's a prophet that you can empathize with him really easily. Because in his dialogue with God that's going back and forth, he essentially plays out what modern day we would call the five stages of grief. You know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Habakkuk was two and a half millennia ahead of his time. And the questions he's asking are questions we resonate with. You know, big questions like, okay, God, how can your plan account for all the evil in the world around us that appears to be going unpunished? you get all technical and study this in school, they call it theodicy, the problem of evil. We ask that question. You can't be a human and not ask that question at some point. You know, we start asking, gosh, how am I supposed to view you, God, or the world, or myself? And then when we try to live faithfully, the question of, well, God, how honest am I supposed to be with my prayers? Because I feel like just lighting you up right now. These are the questions. And so when we dive into Habakkuk, What he says today is going to speak to that. So let's pray, ask Jesus to set the tone, and we're going to take off, all right? Jesus, I thank you that you brought us here today. I thank you for this book, this short little book, and this man, Habakkuk, that you raised up to do your your work and speak your truth. Jesus, I ask that today you will open our minds and you'll soften our hearts. I ask that you'll do a really cool thing. You'll speak truth to us. You'll show us something about you or ourselves or our world. Maybe, God, hopefully all the above. I pray for all of us, whether we came in here and it was an awesome week or a heavy week. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, get the enemy out of here, out of this room. Uh, We just rebuke you, Satan, and we declare that in the name of Jesus, this is not your space. This is his space to bring us together and to do what he wants to do. We drive out any evil spirit by the Holy Spirit's authority that would try to to thwart or confuse or mix up our brains. We drive them out of this place and we ask, Lord, that you would do a really cool thing in us. You'd get us ready to go out into our little mission field here and bring the hope and healing this week. And in your name, we pray together. Amen. All right. Well, let's go ahead and flip to... Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12. I'm going to be in the CSB today. You can go hard copy. You can look on the screen. If you're online, insidescc.org, you can just uh, click on take sermon notes and it'll pop up right there. It's sometimes helpful to know where's all this action taking place. So we're going to throw something up on the screen here. On this map you see we've got uh, our people They're living in Judah. Habakkuk is a prophet in Judah. He's ministering around the same time as the prophet Jeremiah, who has a much longer book. And you see it right there, kind of on the uh, close to the Mediterranean Sea. So we've got Judah. Israel has already been carried off into captivity. And the big bully on the street for a long time has been Assyria. But Assyria is losing power. And the big rising bully is just to the southeast there is Babylonia. They are the ones who are gaining in power. Now, to summarize Craig's preview, he did a phenomenal job the last two weeks laying out this book in the background. We're going to jump to this slide really quick here, this next one. So we've got Habakkuk. He, 
is not a very happy guy for much of the time, and he's looking around at all the injustice in his world. He's watching people. They're not worshiping God. Their primary goal is not that. They're guilty of idolatry. They're worshiping other things. It's the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom's about to fall, and they know, they can see on the horizon, the threat of Babylon coming. But what Habakkuk does, he never accuses his people, which is kind of weird. His dialogue is just him and God. That's the whole conversation, the whole time. And he addresses God pretty bluntly with his struggle, saying, God, are you good even when there's so much evil in the world? And the way he does that is lament. He looks at all the injustice and he draws God's attention to it over and over. So the last two weeks, this is where Craig took us so far. We heard Habakkuk offer one complaint and we heard God make one response. And we'll summarize that with this next picture before we dive in here, okay? So we've got Habakkuk. And he's basically said, God, how long do I have to cry out? Why won't you listen when people aren't following your word? The Torah is neglected. There's violence. There's injustice everywhere. We've got corrupt leadership. Other countries have corrupt leadership. This is terrible. And God says, well, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to deal with your people's sin. And the person I'm going to use, I'm going to use those Babylonians. I'm going to raise those up. Habakkuk does not like that answer at all. It sounds horrible to him. And that is where we pick up in his prayer when he offers this complaint. So here's verse 12. He says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My holy one, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. This is a bombastic start. This is not the typical way most of us would think you pray. One scholar went so far as to say this, Francis Anderson's his name. He said, nothing could be more abrupt than the beginning of Habakkuk's second prayer. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the Bible. God is not approached with courtesy and respect. So Habakkuk, no doubt dealing with the denial of what God has just said to him, he comes in strong. His rhetorical question game is on point. He says, God, aren't you eternal? Aren't you going to live forever? Because if you are truly immortal, how can you let this happen? And we know you're not going to die, and we're your people, so surely we're not going to die either, right? How can you use Babylon to punish our sins when their sins are even worse than ours are? Habakkuk's theology of God, who he knows God to be and how he knows God to act, it does not line up with what God just said. There is like a contrast here. There's a dissonance there. And what did, he, what did he call God? You notice he refers to him as the rock. He said, my rock, you destined them to punish us. Well, that's a term that in the Old Testament, when they called God the rock, they're saying, God, we can count on you. You protect us. You're there for us. You're a refuge. And Habakkuk's like, man, the way you're choosing to act, it seems pretty confusing. It doesn't seem, con- it doesn't seem to fit with that. It seems pretty contrary to your nature. You're the rock. I don't like what you're cooking at all. forgive me. But Habakkuk goes on. He's not finished yet. Verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who's more righteous than himself? Habakkuk decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it on myself to remind God about the reality of the situation. He says, God, let me frame this out, okay? So here's the deal. Here's who you are, and here's how you've acted in the past. Uh, Here's who the Babylonians are. This is how they're acting right now. This is how wicked they are. How are you putting up with this? Where are you at? 
And he says, God, your eyes are too pure to tolerate evil. And, and that's true. God doesn't typically just sit there with his little divine bag of Doritos and his lazy boy saying, oh, I wonder how this evil is going to play out. No, if you read the history of God's people, he has a tendency to step in and intervene and deal with sin. But not only does it seem like God's not dealing with sin in a timely way, him not doing that is causing even his faithful people, that little remnant of people who are blameless and seeking to honor God and trying to keep the primary aim of loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, they're paying the consequences. And he's saying, what is the deal? Now, he's not going to argue his people are perfect. He knows the injustice they're letting happen. He knows the idolatry, all the false gods they're chasing. He knows they're rebellious people, but relatively speaking, he says, we're way more innocent than those nasty Babylonians are. In the ancient world, they had this notion, you notice he talked about them being swallowed up. I think in the verse he actually said, I want to make sure I read it right, why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who's more righteous than themselves? God, why, why are you letting them eat us? Now, sometimes swallowing up could literally mean you just get destroyed. But there was a different, deeper meaning in the ancient world too. It added a whole other layer. And that was that whenever you had an attacker who's attacking a victim, and when they get swallowed up, any power that victim had, any authority they had, anything that made them unique gets totally absorbed into the attacker, the predator. And they get the benefit of that. And the victim is left with nothing. And this happened a whole lot if you read in the history not too long after that when Babylon starts attacking Jerusalem. They carry off a lot of the best things and they take it home to their capital city of Babylon and say, yes, we'll take all your good stuff and we'll use it to make our world great. For instance, Daniel, who entered and survived the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who survived the fiery furnace. They were what was taken. They were the unique, beautiful parts of Jerusalem that when Jerusalem got swallowed up, they said, thank you very much, we'll take you, we'll bring you to Babylon, help make our world great. They got swallowed up. And Habakkuk hates that this is happening. And it's clear though, you know, he's being brutally honest. He's being downright raw. And he knows God is the only one that I can turn to with this. He's the only one who can either do something to change the circumstances or change my perspective. And even though his words might seem kind of strong by a lot of our standards of how we were taught to pray, he knows God can take it. God wants me to come to him with this. And it's clear, Habakkuk, he's still clinging to this faith in God, even with his doubts. Craig, last week, talked about what it means to lament, that there's four steps to that. You turn to God, you complain, you ask and trust. And Habakkuk's living that out. He says, God, I'm turning to you offering you my complaints. I'm asking these questions. I'm going to try to trust you. I'm doing the best I can. It's a model of how we need to be doing this. And it brings up that question, so is it possible for a good God to allow something painful when he could stop it? I heard a pastor, J.D. Greer, a lot of you have heard of J.D., uh, talking about this. And he offered this example. A lot of times, maybe you've seen a parent have to take their kid to the ER or to the doctor to get shots before they start kindergarten. Maybe uh, they busted their head open. Miles one time uh, fell on a set of steps. He was like two and a half, split his head open. And I can remember going to the ER and it was miserable. I can remember they were like, well, we're gonna have to put his arms behind his back and we'll tuck him in a pillowcase. And this big 
tough nurse like had to hold him down uh, while the other nurses were injecting him with a numbing agent and stitching him. And he's going, mom, dad. And we're all like, oh, Sarah and I are like over there hugging each other. Like we're terrible. How did we let this happen? It was so bad. But you got a teddy bear. That's true. <laughs> yep. A $1,300 teddy bear. <laughs> yep. Yep. He better keep that bear until he goes to be with Jesus. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so in the big picture, we knew it might hurt. It might sting. There might be a scar, but it's going to be less than what it would be if they stitch it up right or if they prevent an infection from happening. So is it possible? Yeah, it is possible for a good person to allow something painful to happen if they know something better will come out of it. I believe wholeheartedly I did the right thing and his mom did the right thing, letting him sit there on that table and get stitched up. And so is it not possible that a lot of the pain God allows us to go through on earth is like that the same way? Maybe so. Maybe the pain we go through, just like the shots or the stitches produced a healthier life for my kiddo, maybe our pain functions the same and it leads to a greater and a happier eternity. Now, we are still going to say in the moment, God, I don't see any good coming out of this. But at the same time, just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. It doesn't mean it's not coming. Habakkuk, he doubles down. <laughs> he is not finished. Verse 14, he says, You've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook. They catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. And that's why they're glad and rejoice. So Habakkuk says, us human beings, I know, we're like fish in the sea. There's a lot of us on the planet. And all these Babylonians or Chaldeans, they're so big and they're so tough, they're basically the new bully on the block. They've got the size, they've got the power, the skill, and the military force. They can capture people groups up just like a fisherman dropping hooks or dragging nets through the sea. And Habakkuk, did you catch that he took a little bit of a shot at God? He kind of pulls a little punch in there? Because what did he say? He said, you've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. So he says, my people, they're like creatures that have no ruler. Well, who's their ruler supposed to be? God. God's the king. And so he backhandedly is like, God, you ain't doing what you're supposed to do. I don't see you protecting us right now. I don't see you defending us right now. Things are looking really, really bleak. How could you deal with us like this? How could you let us feel abandoned in this moment? And to make it worse, the Babylonians, they are living this up. It's bad enough Habakkuk feels hung out to dry with his bros there, but now he's saying, God, are you responsible for all the joy they're getting? Because here's what those people are doing right now. Verse 16, that's why they sacrifice to their dragnet, and they burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? Oh, they're getting a kick out of this. The Chaldeans love it. They rejoice because they worship their nets. Now, their nets and their hooks, those are metaphors for their power and their strength, their, their military force. And why did they do this? Why are they making that their primary thing? Why are they focused on that? Because it's making them really, really rich. At this time, Babylon was an immensely wealthy city, 
And the grandeur and the splendor of it outshined anything in the ancient world 2,500 years ago. It wasn't even close. And here's Habakkuk, verse 17. What does he say? He says, Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? He says, does Babylon just get to keep mowing people down? Are my people, they get to be the next ones here? Do, do those Chaldeans, do they get to just reap the spoils and not have a consequence? God, can you show a little bit of mercy, please? Por favor. And we struggle with brokenness and corruption in this same way in our world today. For instance, how long, Lord, will 40 million people be trapped in slavery worldwide? This is 2022. Shouldn't this be over by now? How long, Lord, will a million people a year die of AIDS? How long, Lord, will we watch conflicts like what's going on in the Ukraine that's costing so many people their lives? That's big picture stuff. What about the smaller picture? God, how long until this housing market evens out enough so I'm not stuck paying an exorbitant rent and I can't even buy a home and get equity? Said every millennial and Gen Z person ever, right? I didn't think it'd take until 34 when I could finally buy a house. Just in general, what about how long will my coworkers get promotions and get celebrated when they are not acting honestly? And I'm over here being the good teammate, doing the right thing, and I'm just spinning my wheels stuck in the same spot. Fill in the blank. We've all got struggles with brokenness and injustice on the big scale and the small scale. And in our Western world, we face these same pitfalls that those Babylonians did. I I knew a pastor named Darren, and Darren grew up in church, but kind of hit college and just said, I'm going to do things my way. And just, he did that. He did it very well. Got a good degree. He went, started climbing the corporate ladder at a major hotel chain, and he was killing it. It was crazy. Now he had to work 80-hour weeks. His marriage wasn't awesome, didn't see his kids a lot, but his standard of living was out the wazoo. And he would go on these business trips and he would just say, man, there was no debauchery that me and my coworkers didn't engage when we were there. It was awful. But one night when he was sitting in a club, the Lord convicted him, this is not how I created you to live. This isn't it. And he ended up confessing, repenting, turning to God, giving his life to Jesus, getting involved in his church. And before long, the Lord called him into ministry. He said, you need to do this. And so you can imagine the adjustments you make from the massive salary of a corporate higher up to being a pastor. But he said there was one little holdout. He said, I drove a Lexus like a lot of my peers did. He said, I, it was a good car and we didn't have a lot of money at this point. So I thought, we'll just drive the Lexus till, it, till its wheels fall off. And people would give him grief about it. Oh, look at that, the pastor driving the Lexus. And he said, and one night I drove to a night class and I parked in the parking lot and there was an issue with the drainage system on campus. Apparently one of the outlets got plugged up and he said, a big storm came, flooded the whole lot, totaled every vehicle and my Lexus was toast. So I learned to drive a Ford Focus or Dodge Stratus. I can't remember what it was. He had some piddly little car like a lot of us drive, you know. I'm rocking a 2000 LeSabre, in case you're wondering. Yeah, I'm killing it, let me tell you. And Darren had to have God reorient him to make it so his ultimate pleasure he was chasing was not happiness, wealth, feeling good, but that he would love the Lord as God with all his heart, his soul, and his strength. 
There's no shortage of things that we can stick in that spot today. For you, it might be your job, your talent, stuff you're good at, things you've accomplished. It could be relationships that you have, trying to know the right people. It could be the stuff that you own. You know, just like the Babylonians, we tend to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we tend to serve created things instead of our creator. That's how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 1. But we were created to worship God. We were created to worship something. And if you do not worship him, you will worship something else. Fill in the blank. So that's a good question. Before we dot the I with Habakkuk, just ask yourself, am I worshiping God? Is Jesus primary? Or am I worshiping something else? Because that's a problem, if that's the case. Are we worshiping God or are we worshiping something else? Now, this ending of this complaint is great. It's the first verse of chapter 2. Let's just read it. Habakkuk closes and he says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Clearly, he's frustrated. Can we jump to this? There we go. All right. Even though he's frustrated, even though Habakkuk is confused, this dude stays faithful. He wants to hear God's response. He wants to be ready to answer. And even though he's voicing his complaint just himself with God, you can see God shift in his heart slowly but surely towards God as he turns there. He doesn't turn away from God. He says, no, I'm going to go up on the wall of the city. And that was a big wall. We're talking, they found this ancient wall like 20 feet wide. Like that was the depth of this thing, solid rock. Big wall. And he said, I'm going to go up on the watchtower where we watch for messengers to come or for enemies to come and attack us. And I'm going to stand there. And even with the pain I feel, I expect an answer and I'm going to wait for one. So here's Habakkuk. What does he do? He remembers God's faithfulness in the past so that he can be faithful in the present. His faithfulness in the present is possible because he remembers God's faithfulness in the past. I picture Habakkuk waiting for this answer, almost like this time of year when you hear there's a storm warning, and immediately I'm conflicted because I know, oh, there's a possible tornado. I need to get the kids in the basement. I need to let the dog in. You know, I need to get the radio ready in case you know, the power goes out. But what do I want to do? I want to be like every other good Midwestern parent. I want to go out on the porch and say, where is this bad boy? I'm watching. Where is it? I know it's coming. I know it's coming. That's the image of Habakkuk at the end of this. He offers this complaint. Okay, storm's coming. Where it at? Show me. And so, for those of you who are visually inclined like me, we kind of look at this picture. We have Habakkuk's second complaint. Here he is standing on the wall. What? Babylon's worse than us. They, 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 they deify their power. They make that their God. They treat humans like animals, including us, and they devour nations. But I'm going to stand and I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait for God to respond to me. And next week, we get to hear God's response. But for this week, we got to ask ourselves, how do we respond to this? We just got to watch Habakkuk grapple 
with this and wrestle. So what do we do? Well, we need to remember a couple things. One, God is super consistent. His character is amazingly consistent. And he does always deal with sin. It's not always in the time frame we want him to do it, but he always deals with sin. And the second thing is God is incredibly patient. He sometimes, as crazy as it seems, lets evil play out for years, decades, even centuries. If it means he can bring about a greater good. And he uses even the worst, nastiest, awful situations to accomplish good things. I read a quote this week when I was prepping for this, and it's in one of the commentaries on Habakkuk by a guy named James Bruckner. And I read it, and I went, there is, I don't even like that. I'm not reading that. And I felt like the Lord was like, uh, the heck you're not reading that. You're going to read that quote. So this is this quote that really grabbed my attention. I think because it's very blunt. It's very much like Habakkuk talks. James Bruckner wrote this. He said, God's first interest isn't in our prosperity or political power. He prefers to destroy us in hope of eventually accomplishing his greater purpose rather than to see us prosper in political security while chasing after our own whims. The lesson of the history of God's people is that God isn't primarily committed to the peace, security, and prosperity of his people. God's first concern for us is faithfulness, living by his word, and true worship. These daily human expressions of trust in Yahweh are manifestly more important to God than fiscal prosperity. He has a much more lasting plan. What's God's first concern for us? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. So, as you sit in this, here's a couple things, a couple ways you might engage with this truth we just saw. You know, some of you maybe need to ask yourself, is the pain that I'm experiencing something God's using to destroy the parts of me that aren't like him? Because I was created in his image to worship him. And if I'm not doing that, eventually when I die, I'm, I'm, I'm no more. But if he destroys those pieces of me, I got a shot. I can love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So ask yourself, is that what God's doing in your pain? Now, some of y'all, you're going, actually, I, I resonate with, you know, that rebellion. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been idolatrous. I've worshiped and put other things first and foremost that are not God, my own pleasure, stuff, people, I don't know. So maybe you just need to confess that that's the case. Repent, turn back to God, and ask him to forgive you and to put you back right on the right path. Or maybe some of you need to do what we've been talking about. You need to lament whatever pain or injustice you're seeing that's tearing you apart. You need to, to go and draw God's attention to it. Craig said it this way. I loved how Craig put this. He said, lament invites us to turn our gaze from the rubble of our lives to the redeemer of every hurt. Another person said, a prayer, a prayer, lament is a prayer in pain that leads us to trust. You know, lament is supposed to be a tool in our toolbox that helps us navigate a broken world. And it's more than venting. A lot of us vent really well, but venting doesn't really go anywhere. We just blow off steam, but the steam builds up. But when you lament, it takes you somewhere better. You know, you see injustice in the world, even on your good days, what should you do? Lament. You, you see brokenness during the bad times, what should you do? You lament. You go to celebrate communion in church, what are you invited to do? Well, you can lament that. You know, a third of the Psalms, a third of the 150 Psalms deal with pain. We got a whole book, Lamentations, in the Bible that deals with pain. Jesus on the cross quoted the first line of a Psalm 22 that dealt with pain. That was his way, 
even as he was strung up and tacked to that cross, of turning, complaining, asking, and trusting. So let's close with this quote. There's a guy named Mark Vrogut wrote a book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and he said, yeah, you might think lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise as we're led through our brokenness and our disappointment. The space between brokenness and God's mercy is where this song is sung. Think of lament as the transition between pain and promise. It is the path from heartbreak to hope. That's why we turn and complain and we ask and we trust and we just make that part of our daily rhythm because we were created for praise because on the other side of it is God's mercy. We can lean on that promise and we can find hope. But we, we've got to do what God created us to do and what he gives us, and that's lamenting. So as the band comes up and we get ready to receive communion, um, that's one of the things you can do during this time. You know, when we celebrate communion and we take the Lord's Supper, it's our way of remembering, like Jesus told us to do, the links that he went to to make it possible for us to be reunited with God. That night when he sat eating that last supper before he got arrested and would eventually get on the cross, it was the Passover meal. They were celebrating the Passover, which is where uh, basically God was going to come over, the angel of death was going to come over the people, and to save the lives of all the firstborns, they took the blood of a lamb, they smeared it over the doorposts, and if the blood was on the doorpost, the spirit passed over and their lives were saved. So Jesus was at this meal, and he takes this picture of these elements that they were used to eating, and he said, well, hey, going forward when you have this meal, here's what I want you to remember. My body is this bread. This cup is my blood. You're going to have to remember what I did, and you're going to have to keep doing this and keep this fresh in your memory. So what I'm going to invite you to do is, you've got these four stations, two in the front, two in the back. Go forward. They will serve you your bread. You can grab a cup of juice, return to your seat, and then after the band has done a couple verses, I'll come back up and we will celebrate together and I'll lead us in that, okay? So Jesus, in this time, I ask that you would draw our focus to you, who you are, what you've done, and that would help launch us out to see what you're up to in our world around us. We give this time to you for whatever you wanna use it for. In your name we pray.